Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. This Australian Investors Podcast episode is brought to you by The Intelligent Investor, Australia's premier investment research membership service. You can get a free trial for 15 days, no credit card details required. To access the insights of some of Australia's best analysts, use the coupon code RASK and secure your Intelligent Investor membership today. We're proud to have The Intelligent Investor as an ongoing supporter of the Australian Investors Podcast. As a result, RASK does not earn a volume-based fee. Simply head to intelligentinvestor.com.au or use the link in your podcast player to access your free trial. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast is also proudly supported by SelfWealth, Australia's leading independent broker. Over 120,000 investors trust SelfWealth with over $9 billion in equities. With SelfWealth, you can trade ASX, US and Hong Kong listed shares for a flat fee. On a $10,000 investment with Comsec, you'd pay $29.95 in fees. Yet with SelfWealth, it's just $9.50. The thing I like about SelfWealth is the full access to fundamental company data and how easy it is to trade US, Hong Kong, and Aussie shares in one place. You can see your Apple shares and ACDC ETF right beside each other. To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. This podcast is sponsored by Rask Invest, Owen's complete guide to money and investing. Visit the Rask Finance website to learn more and join today. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast, a series exploring the investment philosophies and journeys of some of Australia's leading investors and financial thinkers. I'm Owen Raskovich, founder of The Rask Group. For show notes and other episodes in this series, as well as free educational resources, please visit www.raskfinance.com. Before we go on, it's important to remember the Australian Investors Podcast is provided for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment, financial or taxation decision. The information included in this podcast does not take into account your needs, goals or objectives and guests appearing on the show may have a financial interest in some of the products mentioned. Please read all the important disclosure documents and refer to the RAS Group's Financial Services Guide on the RAS Finance website. Ilan Israel Stem is the Head of Strategy and Marketing at BetaShares, a fast-growing Australian funds management company that focuses on exchange-traded funds, or ETFs. He is also a principal at venture capital firm Apex Capital Partners. In this episode, Ilan and I discuss entrepreneurship and why taking risk was in his DNA, the world of venture capital, what he looks for in startup financial companies, how ETFs are changing the investing world, and much more. But first, Ilan tells us why he has 30 pairs of shoes. Sneakers to be more exact than shoes. So I'm not out there collecting, uh, you know, formal wear. (laughs) But I do, rather embarrassingly perhaps, love sneakers and in particular limited edition sort of retro style sneakers. (laughs) I don't know if you know, it's actually a huge industry. And when I say huge, I think secondhand Nike sneakers are, I think it goes Nike new first in Mm -hmm. terms of sales, then maybe Adidas. And then I think third comes Nike Vintage. So it's a huge industry. People are making a lot of money out of it. I don't do any of that. It's probably (laughs) the one area of my life which is entirely not about investment and is all about, I guess, some sort of a personal enjoyment. And look, it's one of those things. It's like an affordable luxury in some ways. Mm. Sometimes not that affordable, Mm. but it's a luxury. And it just reminds me of 
to an extent some of my early years childhood i mean mm. i don't know you know when i was growing up air jordan was just a big thing and everyone mm. wanted to be like mike and and it was the be all and end all so maybe it's a subconscious way for me to try and <laughs> relive my youth um and it's just a really vibrant subculture and there's one other element about it which i love which is that thrill of the chase when when a new pair of sneakers mm. comes out that is limited it's actually really hard to find so there's a little bit of that thrill of the chase mm. element of it so yes Slightly unusual, um, but something that I do enjoy. Okay, I've got to ask the obvious question. How many pairs of sneakers <laughs> would you have? I would say in terms of really sort of limited edition style sneakers, ones that actually are worthy, at mm-hmm. least from my perspective, I'm going to say 35 to 40. Nice. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Wonderful. So, okay, it's, it's, um, I, I can only imagine just walking into your wardrobe and just seeing all these things. <laughs> I mean, why not? Why not? Yeah. Okay, so now let's talk about investing in some things that you um, make money from or you hope to make a return from. Yeah. But um, before we get into the nitty-gritty of that, let's go back to you as a youngster. How did you come to be involved in finance? Well, going back a long way, I was always quite entrepreneurial. And okay. so for me, the finance element is really more the entrepreneurial element. It just so happens that a lot of the pursuits that I've been involved in recently in relation to, to entrepreneurial activity has been finance related. But certainly from the early years, I've always been pretty entrepreneurial. I remember you know, setting up a mini golf for my uh, neighbors to come and play at 20 cents a pop. And my brother and I used to sort of charge people to enter our little mini, mini golf uh, uh, set that we set up and, and creating, you know, going door to door and selling things. So I've always been quite entrepreneurial at school. I was involved in trying to set up a few failed businesses. So I think there's no doubt that there's always been an entrepreneurial side of me. Um, but when it comes to the finance component, I mean, I did do a commerce degree and law degree at the mm-hmm. University of New South Wales, and that made me interested in, in the finance or investment side of things. Mm. But I think. Yeah, in entrepreneurship more generally and building companies and helping others build companies by, by, by providing capital was like a natural extension for my entrepreneurial side. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, I guess, one, when one thinks about doing something entrepreneurial in Australia in particular, you've got, you've got two choices. Either you have to think about a, an area of the world which is starts in Australia but then goes global, which means you're going to probably spend a lot of your time on planes. Like, a lot of your time on plans mm. and ultimately probably end up moving elsewhere. But finance is one area that you can build, I think, something that's globally relevant from Australia and largely stay within Australia. You know, we do have a huge superannuation industry, it's the fourth largest in the world. So we're, we punch way above our weight. And so I suppose for somebody entrepreneurially minded who wants to try stay in Australia, mm. the financial service area is, is an area that I think makes a lot of sense. And there is an altruistic component to it. You are helping with people's well-being and retirement savings and, and, and building something. So there's, there's an area, area there of building something that, is, that I've also been attracted to. Um, and then I was always invested in shares um, over the years. And so I was aware of, I guess, some of the deficiencies of doing that when mm. we thought about some of the businesses we've been involved in. But just going right back to your question, that entrepreneurial component and that kind of passion for building something almost definitely came from my, the fact that I'm an immigrant. Hmm. Uh, I came here in, um, as a, a teenager, I suppose, uh, an early teenager from South Africa uh, and did a lot of moving around before we eventually settled with my family, uh, my mother and father and, and brother and sister here in Australia. Mm-hmm. And I guess I realized quite keenly what my parents gave up mm. to give us that better future. And it gave me the passion to try and build something and a kind of a level of questioning and rebelliousness that you need to become an entrepreneur and to do something for yourself did you think seeing them do that did it give you the confidence to take risk i think that's right i think it does it does give you the confidence to take risk because i think subconsciously we can get quite freudian here but let's not do that mm-hmm. you, you know think subconsciously you know that you can pick yourself up in a brand new environment and be okay Mm-hmm. So there's a resilience factor that comes from being an immigrant because you left everything behind, including a whole lot of well-being and money, mm-hmm. and come to a place with less friends, family, contacts, and money, and you've been able to be okay. And so I think you're able to take risks that way. I think you're right. I think that's right. I haven't thought about it before, but I think that's right. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you know the key to success is persistence, right? And it sounds like you've had a few 
of these endeavors over your life and you found a few that have worked really well. But yeah. We'll get to that in just a moment. Of course. Uh, you mentioned that you studied at um, UNSW. Then you got a job at Boston Consulting, is that right? Yeah, yeah. They call it BCG or Boston Consulting Group, yeah. And what did you do there? Yeah, so Boston Consulting Group or BCG as it's called is one of the world's largest and leading strategy consulting firms. Now, what that means is that essentially you are consulting to large companies, the types of companies that can afford the, mm-hmm. the sort of fees that they charge at the CEO or product or at the CEO or business head level. So you're doing things like giving CEOs opinions on whether they should, for example, and I'm going to pull this out of the air, enter China yep. or whether they should focus on one particular line of business or enter a new business or should they sell a business. So it's that sort of very high-level strategy mm. that's actually very, very analytical and much more analytical than I originally had thought. Um, it does involve art, but it also involves a whole lot of science. And I just found it to be a really f- phenomenal training ground, frankly. Mm, I do been. continue to view those five and a half years I had there as an extension of my education almost more than anything else. Mm-hmm. You're surrounded by incredibly articulate and, and, and rounded people and you get resilience, more resilience. You learn how to work your ass off, frankly, mm. uh, and you get a whole lot of technical skills as well that you weren't otherwise uh, had because, because it's such a expensive thing for a client to be buying the service of which mm. is which is management consulting you're on from day one you absolutely you know you there's, there's no in-betweens as soon as you hit the ground you hit the ground running and you have to swim pretty fast so i do think that you know that it was a really good training training ground for myself and i also got to do a lot of travel i lived in new york city for two year, two and a half years as nice. part of it which is a great experience mm. and for me if i now reflect back on that I guess, more entrepreneurial journey that I've been on uh, since then. I guess I was the kind of person who was a risk taker, but clearly not enough of a risk taker to just go straight into it. Mm. I felt that I needed some, I'm going to use the word vocabulary in a bro- in, the, mm. in its broader sense, mm-hmm. not actually vocabulary, mm-hmm. but in its broader sense, a business vocabulary, a business skill set. And that, that time at Boston Consulting Group really equipped me with, the confidence that I needed to now say, okay, I'm going to go out and do something. I imagine with your time there at BCG, you would have had um, exposure to a diverse range of businesses as well. So you would have seen the good, the bad and the ugly. Yeah. yeah presumably. Um, you, you alluded to it there. You said that you were there for quite a few years. And this was, if I'm not mistaken, in the lead up to say the GFC, a bit before that. Yeah. Uh, and then you decided to leave. Yes. Why? Yeah. Look, the reason I left was because there was an entrepreneurial itch that I had to scratch. And I have nothing but the utmost respect for that organization. I'm still very, very close. I'm a proud alumni, as they call it. And I, I always help people out thinking about their time there. But I got to the point where, and they call it hell hath harbor views, right? There's, so you basically press the button to the elevator mm. and you're about to go up to the most one of the most beautiful offices in the world, which at that point was the top of the, one of the large towers here in Sydney. And you're going to be sitting in an office where you can see an almost 360 degree view of almost the mm. most beautiful harbour in the world, which is Sydney Harbour. And you still feel sick to your stomach that you're doing it. That's when you know you have to leave. Mm. And so, yeah, I did leave. Um, I did leave. And I did something that was a pretty big risk and I think quite unusual, which is that I went to, tra- to China without learning Chinese, without knowing much of Chinese and without a specific business idea. And essentially, I set, up, I set, set myself up there to set up a business there. Oh, okay. I did not know this. Yes. What, what, what was the business? Yeah, well, it ended up being an advertising business. So, you know, the you probably see them now around the streets of Sydney and Melbourne and, and other capital cities in Australia where there are screens with advertising on them. Mm. So, I essentially was building a business there that had advertising screens in installed in universities, primarily universities. So, right. But universities in China are huge institutions like the Uni of Melbourne or University of New South Wales, Thirty to 40,000 people, They're like mini cities. Yeah. And so I, had the, I won in the end the contract to, along with the government of China, to build out these screens to show um, advertising but also educational messages at the huh. same time. Yeah. Right. So and did you, you know, I'm guessing you just didn't, Pack your bags and think. Let's go. You you've given this some thought before you. Yeah, I did. I did. I did. Obviously, look at China. I was fascinated by China. I realized that I was already quite late in terms of its growth trajectory, but I knew there was a lot more to come. And lo and behold, hasn't there ever been? Mm. So I knew there was going to be a lot more growth to come. 
I looked at some areas where foreign involvement is possible. Advertising is one of them. I then okay. looked at the sub areas and started looking into in, into the area. I just think that media was a great growth area in China. I mean, when a when a country is coming out of a kind of emerging state into a more mature state, media is actually a beautiful place to be. Mm. Not the case, obviously, in Australia <laughs> at the moment, because that's not at all mm. in that sort of growth trajectory that China is on. But it can be interesting, and it turns out that outdoor advertising, which is the area that I was dealing with was quite open to foreign involvement and foreign investment. So it was an incredible experience and talk about resilience. In the end, I was managing 50 pretty much Chinese-only speaking staff. Mm. I was the only uh, non-Chinese speaker. I did obviously get to speak a bit of it in the end, mm. but it was, a, it was a great experience and certainly um, taught me a lot. Um, but your discussion about the GFC, this is where I was impacted by the GFC. Okay. So we had a, a great run. We needed capital and we had, we had a pretty good start there with... Um, pretty good start there with you know with building out these screens which are actually reasonably capital intensive mm. you've got to spend a fair bit of money to build out we're talking about hundreds of thousands of screens oh, wow. so at some point you need a really big capital mm. raise i was at the talking to some relatively significant investors around financing this particular opportunity and literally on quite literally on on the day of which i had what's known as a term sheet which is basically mm. the the high-level points by which an investor decides to invest in your company, the GFC, I think Lehman or whatever it was, Bear Stearns went, went under and they said, look, we love this opportunity, but we just can't look at it right now. And so all of a sudden, it was a pretty big amount of capital was whipped away from me, mm. which made it almost impossible to grow for a number of years. And that just left the business sort of in a, in a bit of a hamstrung state. So it wasn't a complete success. It wasn't a complete failure either, but it definitely didn't grow to be what I wanted it to be. Mm. But what an incredible experience from a learning perspective. Mm. And I would continue to put that down there as one of the more formative experiences in my life. Um, so the reason why it was so formative is one, I there was a confidence level that I had there, even though I got that confidence knocked by an external event in this case, mm. the, glo- the global financial crisis. But it was quite a lonely experience. I mean, both physically, mentally, and literally, and, and emotionally. So, first of all, uh, you know, I was in China, which is one thing. But also, I was doing it all by myself. And so, when I came back to Australia, I specifically sought out some partners mm. to work with, and that's how I ended up connecting with the guys that I currently work with at a business which we call Apex Capital Partners. Right. Okay. I was about to get to that. So, today, there's effectively two businesses that you're Daily or involved in, you know, intimately, which are Apex Capital Partners, and for most listeners of this podcast, will know Beta Shares. Yes. Why don't we start with the one people don't know, and can you explain what Apex Capital Partners is? Yeah. So, look, Apex Capital is is essentially an investor, an investor that focuses primarily on financial services. So we invest in early stage companies. Mm-hmm. We partner with early com- early stage companies in the financial services sector globally, although with a large focus on Asia and Australia, mm-hmm. to try and grow them into larger companies by providing intellectual and financial capital, mm-hmm. uh, as well as our know-how networks to those companies. So it is like what many people would know as a venture capitalist. In that sense, we are taking risk by providing some capital mm-hmm. to early stage ventures, hence the name venture capital, with an aim to at some point earn a return when the company is large enough and independent enough to, for example, be sold to another company or perhaps list on the stock market, which is known as an IPO. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's the nature of what we do. So we, um, we are a little bit different in the sense that we don't only do that. We also are quite happy to essentially back ourselves and build companies ourselves. Okay. And so this, this one you mentioned, BetaShares, is, is, a, is a pretty good example of that. So it's either either finding an opportunity and going after it ourselves by building it. Now, obviously, you can't do many of those at any given time, but then also investing in other people's ideas and businesses. Okay. So what? Uh, there's a few questions on this. So you, you set up this company. How did you fund it in the early days? Were you just all funding it yourself and, or did you get investors on board? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the company Apex Capital was in existence prior to my involvement in it. Okay. It actually has an interesting history uh, that involves uh, our previous Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull who was oh. involved in setting up the firm that ended up turning into Apex Capital. Oh. So there was a few few of my existing partners involved um, 
at the time. Mm-hmm. So I joined them. And in, in the end, the, the actual business of investing in other people's businesses doesn't require a lot of capital. Um, obviously, the investment side does. But the running of the business is relatively mm-hmm. lean because you can have quite a small number of staff members uh, and still still maintain uh, you know maintain the business. So at no point has Apex Capital as a management company ever raised any capital. Okay. It's always just been funded by ourselves and our activities. Mm-hmm. Of course, when it comes to investing in people's companies, that either has to be done via our own means or, and, and it is our own means, or at times the capital of other groups that are close to us and have worked with us before who would like to uh, get involved in the ventures that we are backing or our own ventures ex- themselves. Okay. You mentioned it before. You said that... The, the opportunity set for f- fintech firms or financial services firms, particularly those focused on technology, I suppose, here in Australia is, is quite large. Can you give us an example of the types of businesses you're looking to invest in? Yeah, so or- it's an interesting area and it has been an area that's got a whole lot of a- attention recently in the media and by probably some of your listeners and, and the entrepreneurs. It's often referred to as fintech and I guess we're quite keen to make sure that it's not necessarily only fintech that we invest right. in. We invest in financial services companies. Because tech is so incredibly omnipotent and omnipresent at the moment, almost definitely there'll be a tech component to virtually anything one does mm. when they wake up in the morning all the way through to when they go to sleep at night. And that's no different to a business. Mm. But we ultimately invest in the financial services side. So we are focused quite on the fin side more so than the tech side and the reason for that is we regularly see almost too regularly we see companies and entrepreneurs who are focusing on the tech side first without getting the fin side right Right. so it's pretty important and as a lesson maybe for listeners or those interested in the space to not only focus on the product side which is ultimately the tech side but also understand everything in the financial services space whether it be the regulation the way in which customers act the 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 way in which uh, you sell to that particular space so it's quite important so um, we regularly sort of say that so in terms of what we're looking for I suppose um, and the kind of things we've invested in probably would be the way you've asked the question Mm. it's a pretty hackneyed thing to say and I hate to say it's something that is a hackneyed thing to say but ultimately by far the most important thing we are doing is investing in incredible people Mm. because business is something that is continually in flux circumstances change the environment changes and people need to react to these changes and the thing is when you need to do that you have to be it's the people that are going to drive that company to succeed it's the people that are going to be able to react to changes accordingly with the right level of speed with the right level of level of maturity and so we always like people that have been entrepreneurs in the past to be quite honest we do like what they call not first-time founders that's not to say we won't look at them but from a, if I'm talking about a wish list, it's something about second time or third time or fourth time founders. And funnily enough, it doesn't even matter whether they've succeeded or failed because just the simple fact of building something, whether you succeed or fail, will just teach you so much. Mm. And, and so that's number one. Then we look to invest, obviously, in a space that's growing. Now, where we are different, and I personally believe where we have a bit of an investing edge is the fact that we invest in an area that is only financial services Mm. so somebody can come to me and give me or us a pitch on a new e-commerce concept involving apples Mm -hmm. and i'm not going to know more than anybody else does in the world about that but when it comes to financial services if somebody comes and pitches a, a company to us in that space We've got a lot of accumulated experience that allows us to pretty quickly understand whether they're onto something or not. So your filter is is better. So by the time you actually spend time on things, you've probably got a greater degree of chance of investing in them than if you would be investing in broad things. So within the financial services space, we are wanting to invest in something that's growing and has good fundamentals behind it. I mean, when we talk about beta shares, that's definitely something that has great fundamentals behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a really good execution plan and importantly the other thing i'd say apart from the people is a focus on sales the other thing we see too much of is people who are focusing too much on building a kick-ass product but don't have a great sales strategy Mm. because ultimately no matter what you build it has to be sold whether it's a service or a hard product or a soft product and so we are 
if anyone comes to talk to us about a business idea, it's often going to we're often going to focus on that sales or what's otherwise known as distribution component. Um, so, in terms of the companies that we, some of the things we've invested in, I guess that was the last part of your question. We'll talk about beta shares, so I won't go into that. But we are, we have invested in an instant. We, we, in a sense, we've been involved in establishing that company. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the current things we're looking at, we've invested in a company in Japan that provides oh. a simple way, an automated way for people to save. So you, your listeners, I'm sure, will be used to things or have heard of things like Acorns mm-hmm. or as, as it's now called in Australia, Rays. Yep. In fact, I'm, you, know, you may have even spoken to them. I'm not sure. We have invested in a Japanese version of that. And so for those who don't know what that is, who don't know what, what I'm talking about when I talk about Acorns, essentially what happens is you put in your uh, credit card details or bank account details and when you make a purchase for $4.50, 50 cents is taken out. So it's an automated savings plan in a sense. So it doesn't cost you $5, but you're essentially spending $5. Mm-hmm. And that 50 cents gets put into a portfolio of, of investments. So it's a simple way to start and a low-cost way to start investing. So that's, But the interesting thing is that is in Japan, which is just a great market for saving and obviously a huge economy in and of mm. itself. So that's a company called Tyranitech. Uh, we've recently backed a completely online uh, a digital mortgage manufacturer and seller. So it will be a, a beautiful way to, to, to buy a mortgage and a beautiful user experience, but also offer a very low cost, um, a very low cost mortgage experience. And uh, the final one would be we've invested in a company called Sellable, which is a product that allows somebody who wants to sell their house a quick way of selling that house without having to go through a traditional sales process. Essentially what happens is the company provides you an offer for your house and that offer can be made very quickly and you can move out quickly and receive the funds for that house which allows both the seller of the company to have immediate capital but also the opportunity for the sell- the sellable which is the name of the company to prepare a proper sales campaign maybe put a lick of paint on the on on, on the property put a new kitchen in and hopefully sell it for more. Okay, yeah. um, that's it. something tells me maybe with the house prices going, that might be something that's in demand in, in the not too distant future. What was the name of the second company, the mortgage? That's called Athena. 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 Okay. Yeah. Okay. So just to round out this conversation on you know, venture capital and backing uh, smaller companies, how do you go about valuing these businesses? Because obviously, when we have you know public securities or large established businesses, you can see the financial statements. You can go back five, ten years, whatever. You, you can't. I'm guessing you can't do that. Yeah, it's a great question, Owen, and you're 100% right. So it is as much an art as it is the science. Mm. You know, you can't use traditional valuation methodologies really. So your, some of your listeners may be in the finance industry or might have studied finance and they've heard about things like discounted cash flow valuation, mm. etc. Yep. You can do it, but ultimately it's going to be what we call rubbish in, rubbish out. In other words, the assumptions are going to drive the response and the response is going to be probably as much as a thumb, thumb suck as everything else. Obviously, no, depending on how how uh, early stage the company is, it can become more or less relevant to do more traditional valuation. Um, and we do because we don't only invest in absolutely early stage companies. We also invest in companies that are beyond the seed stage. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is still, in my opinion, at this in any early stage company, more of an art and a science. And, you know, I can sort of extol a whole lot of theoretical things but let me tell you what it really is about it really is about our view on where the business could be valued in the future Mm -hmm. and what sort of minimum return we need to get so we would take a view on what based upon the forecast or the prospectivity of that company or the environment that it's placed itself in uh, we would take a view on what we think is possible that the company in the best case scenario could be valued at we would then say, okay, what does that mean in terms of our return hurdle? So we would have a return hurdle for the risk we're taking, mm-hmm. and that's going to be on the basis of a multiple of the amount of money you've put in. So it won't be using what's known as an IRR, like mm-hmm. a return of investment, like you would think about shares. It's actually how many times of your money do you want to make because that's what you're doing. You're taking high risk, so you yeah. want to have multiples of money or money multiple. We would say, let, you know, we want a certain amount. We hope to – in the best case scenario, it would be awesome if we would get, for example, five times of our money. Mm-hmm. For that to happen, if I now know what I think the company could possibly be worth in the future, and they're asking me to give me, they're asking me to put money at this valuation, that's where you come to it. Yep. So that's how you do it. That's frankly how it's done. Yep. And uh, yeah, that's what we do. 
Okay. Um, I, I was thinking about this question because it is such a hard one to answer. Uh, I suppose one roundabout way to think about it is how many deals would you say you look at or how many of these companies would you look at and then how many would you act on? Yeah. So I would say that one thing is true, that because we focus only on one area, we look at, before we even get to looking at them, we've already, if you think about it, we've already narrowed the Mm. scope. So probably as a percentage, it would still be a higher percentage of things that we invest in relative to a more generalist investor. But in saying that, it's still probably no more than 1% or 2%. Right. So I would say it's between 1% or 2%, which would and if it's two, that's, du- that's, more, that's double the amount of one. And if it's two, which it probably could be closer to two than one, it's because we're focusing on a particular area mm. where others are not only – if you think about other investors, they're not only talking about all the things we would typically talk about, the people, the micro space, et cetera. They're also now focusing on the macro space. We've mm. taken that out by only focusing on this one area of financial services. Mm. It's very interesting. If only we could all be that, I suppose, diligent and uh, yeah. patient with our investments. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, Okay, let's move from one end of the, I suppose, the equity market risk curve, which is um, you know, venture capital and these early businesses. Let's talk about beta shares and how tremendously successful it has been in a relatively short period of time. How much do you guys manage at the moment? How much does the company manage? Yeah, well, I'll start by just telling people what beta shares is, I yeah, guess. Sure. So beta shares is an Australian, I guess, leader now in exchange-traded funds. So ETFs, I'm sure we'll talk about what those are. So that is... Uh, that's what we do. We are a manager of only exchange-traded funds. These are funds that are bought and sold like any share on the ASX um, called ETFs. And we're currently managing 51 of those exchange-traded products and the current uh, hmm. amounts of assets under management. This is at the kind of into the middle of December of 2018 is, is about $6.2 billion. Well, so it's growing quickly. It yeah. has grown very quickly. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about the genesis. You mentioned that it's kind of come out of this like internal incubator if you like you've you funded the business you've operated it where did the idea come from and i suppose what was the what was the itch that you're scratching for the industry what, what was the problem you're solving yeah so as i mentioned we're always looking at interesting parts of the financial services industry and we're actually very focused as well on the wealth management side mm-hmm. the way that people invest their money the way in which people get advice all these types of things and ETFs or exchange traded funds was something that we had been watching carefully because what we're really lucky with is that we've got an industry in the US, the ETF industry in the US, that is approximately 10 years ahead of ours. So it's almost like seeing the future. Mm-hmm. So we looked, we're always looking overseas for inspiration and we looked at the growth of the exchange traded funds industry in the US and we, we always had it on the back of our mind as this is something that could be really interesting. Now, what... But we didn't pull the trigger for some, some time, even though we'd been checking, checking it out for quite some time. And the reason for that was there was a number of things that changed in the market that really made this, inter- this particular space of ETFs very interesting. And those were a couple of preconditions. Number one, we saw the growth and growth of what's known as the self-managed super fund industry. Self-managed super fund. Was a, it was a change that was made that allowed investors in their superannuation to make choices and do things themselves they could set up essentially a self-managed so you are actually managing the super fund yourself now why is that important because what that means is that people are looking for choice and they're not beholden to a particular advisor Mm. they do what they want in fact in many respects they're specifically trying to break the shackles of of a more of a constrained environment and etfs as we'll speak about in the future are perfect for that Mm. second of all there was a change in the way the financial planners were able to be remunerated. And that hadn't come in into, 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 into law yet, but we had heard back in around 2008 the beginnings of what's now called the FOFA reform, which is mm. the future of financial advice. And the future of financial advice, which actually only ended up coming in in 2012, but certainly by the time we launched the business in 2010, we knew it was going to happen, is a situation where a financial advisor is not able to be paid by a product manufacturer for selling their product. Mm. Now, ETFs were never going to be amenable to that kind of a structure because they're bought and sold like a share. And so when that was removed, or when we thought that was going to be removed, it meant that a whole impediment to sales was removed. And probably finally and arguably most importantly, 
and amazingly, the global financial crisis was the best thing that could have happened to the ETF industry. Hmm. Now, why would losing a whole lot of money, a crap load of money, be the best thing that could happen to any industry? Because investors became incredibly focused on the very things that ETFs provide them. They became very focused on costs because they felt they were paying a lot of money to active managers who ultimately lost their money in the global financial crisis. They became very focused on transparency for much of the same reasons. People didn't know what the hell was happening. With ETFs, you know exactly what's happening. Um, and all the sorts of things that, that we need, basically, to have a very strong ecosystem for ETFs were brought out by the global financial crisis. Mm. A focus on choice, a focus on fees, in some respect a scrutiny, uh, a scrutiny in, in the way in which people buy product. And that was the perfect thing. So when those things happened... We decided it was time to pull the trigger. Mm. And so we self-funded the business for some time. And ultimately, we needed more capital. And so we ended up finding a very like-minded group that had a re- was probably about three to four years ahead of us in Canada, similarly entrepreneurial, similarly un- uh, independent. And we took money from them okay. uh, as a shareholder. And um, yeah, the early days were tough, you know, very, very tough. I guess we started the business. The first funds were launched at the beginning of 2011, the end of 2010. And I remember it was tough going. The early members of our team in the sales side, of which uh, many other guys are still with us, had people slam the phone down on them. Huh. And, you know, the traction was hard. And people didn't understand what ETFs were. But, you know, things changed. People started learning more. The media attention started growing. And it's kind of an area where once you've got into it in the first place, the repeat rate is very, very high. And so things opened up. And now, I mean, if I think about the difference between now and then, it is chalk and cheese. We're writing... Again, this is December 18. We're writing about 100 to $200 million of business a year, a month now, hmm. and uh, it's changing fast. Yeah, wow. You touched on a point there, which just to clarify for listeners, we talked about um, the advice that they would, prior to these changes in, a, in the financial advice space, um, advisors would get remunerated for giving advice and putting their clients into particular investments. So they would take a percentage, sometimes up front, sometimes ongoing. And it was, looking back on it now, it's ludicrous when you think about it. But um, so that's that's very interesting that you brought that up. Um, perhaps we've, we've, we've danced it around a little bit. Let's talk about what an ETF is. Sure. And I suppose, how does it work and what are the benefits? Sure. Great. Absolutely. So an ETF stands for Exchange Traded Fund. And in many respects, it's the same structure as a traditional managed fund that some of your listeners would be um, used to, in the sense that it is an investment fund that has a number of assets all together in a single fund. So you buy and sell one particular fund to get access to a whole lot of uh, underlying exposures. Mm -hmm. But the best way to understand an ETF is to give an example. So I'll take the example of our um, NASDAQ 100 ETF. so the NASDAQ 100 ETF, if you think about it yourself, you think, you think to yourself or your listeners think to themselves, you know, I've, I've heard a lot about all this technology stuff. I'm using it every single day in my life. How do I actually invest in the companies that I use every day? And what companies are those? Well, we all know what they are. They're mm-hmm. Apple, Facebook, Google, and soon to be Amazon more and more in Australia, uh, Netflix, etc. This is the things that we use every single day in our lives. It wouldn't be a single person that is listening to this that has not used at least one, but probably almost all mm-hmm. of the companies I've just used mentioned today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what does one do? Well, you can either go ahead and try and buy an individual stock, which is fine, or you can buy multiple stocks. Now, number one, that's quite difficult. You've got to go get access to the US share market. But also, you've got to have a view on whether you should buy Facebook or Google. And the way I'm describing an ETF is now as this example is to say, I want to get exposure to the technology sector with an ETF with a single trade on the ASX. In other words, just like buying any, any share with no minimum investment uh, of any sort, I can now buy the whole index in one trade, the NASDAQ 100. So that means I'm getting exposure to not just Facebook, not just Amazon, but to all of the 100 companies that make up the NASDAQ 100. NASDAQ 100 being the largest 100 companies in the NASDAQ, on the NASDAQ stock exchange, which happen to have a lot of the tech companies in it. So essentially, ETS gives you an exposure to that um, in a simple way. 
mm-hmm. as simply as buying a share. So it's perfect for beginner investors, but also very good for um, more sophisticated investors to get exposure to a particular theme. And it's moved to a point now where it's not just, for example, the NASDAQ 100, but now a whole lot of Australian exposures, not only equities. It can actually be fixed income or bonds, as it's called. It could be commodities. It could be currency. So it's a simple way to get exposure to an investment theme that's diversified. And now we'll get to the benefits. It's diversified. Because of the way I've just described it, you'd also probably understand that it's low in cost. We don't have to hire a star fund manager to pick a stock. We just track the NASDAQ 100 or aim to track the NASDAQ 100. So it's therefore much lower cost, the savings we pass back on to investors. Um, We're also completely happy to tell our investors what's in the portfolio every day. So that's the other benefit of transparency. And liquidity is another benefit because you can buy and sell at any time. So again, unlike a managed fund, you decide you want to get out, you've got to fill in some paperwork, there'll be some period of time before you actually receive the money. Here, you decide you want to sell it or buy it, you make that decision there and then, you buy and sell it on the market and within two days you get your money. So that's what an ETF is and the benefits are, to summarize once again, things like cost effectiveness, transparency, uh, liquidity in the sense you can buy and sell it, um, and just simplicity, being able to access it mm. in any way. So that's that's basically what it is. Yep. Uh, we'll pop the hood on it in just a minute, but hopefully you can debunk a myth for some of our listeners. Yeah. Is an ETF the same as an index fund? So there are ETFs that are index funds. Mm-hmm. Let, me, let me answer like that. So an index fund is a fund that basically aims to track an index. And as I've just spoken about, that NASDAQ or NDQ fund is an index fund in the sense that it's an index fund ETF. Um, The difference, I suppose, is that an index fund as defined would not be exchange traded, so you would not be able to buy and sell like a share. So an index tracking ETF can be bought and sold like a a share, but in every other respect is very similar to the same index fund that is not bought and sold like a share. Importantly, though, you can't buy and sell an index fund like a share, so you you do still have to fill in paperwork, etc., which is a big thing. Um, and then on the other hand, the, it, it, the, because the index has the ETF industry has matured somewhat, there are ETFs now that don't necessarily track an index. I'll give you an example. They typically are rules-based, but that doesn't mean they track an index. So our, an example I have is we've got a fund in our beta shares stable called the Bear Fund, B-E-A-R, is the mm-hmm. ASX code. Now, the Bear Fund aims to go up when the ASX share market goes down. There's no index that it's tracking. It is completely rules-based because it basically aims to go up when the market goes down, but it is not a tracker of an index. So I guess hopefully that tries to dispel that particular myth yep. or, or, or give that answer. I'm glad you brought up the Bear Fund. Um, so for me, the way I describe it is an ETF is effectively the wrapper around the outside. It's the way to get in and out, and that has you know, been fantastic. An index fund is just one of the things that can be found inside the wrapper. I think that's a great explanation. Um, you brought up the Bear Fund. This goes effectively the inverse of what the market does. Can you just, for our, perhaps for some of our advanced listeners, how does it do that? Does it use futures contracts? Yes, it is a bit more advanced for some of your listeners, but that's what it does. So it shorts or goes short a futures contract, which is really the same as saying it goes short the market on your behalf. Mm. Now, the reason why that's so helpful and the reason why those funds have been successful is that it's actually a hell of a hard thing to do. Mm. It's virtually impossible to do as an individual investor. Mm. And, and frankly, even as a financial advisor, it's quite hard to do as well. So that's all done for you. I mean, setting up a futures account is complicated. You've got to do yeah. things like what's known as post-margin. It's not, it's not easy. You've got to roll these things because they have expiry dates. So I guess one of the things about ETFs that we have and in the industry more generally is that we are democratizing things that otherwise would be the domain of very experienced investors. You know? mm. So example like that, shorting the market, virtually impossible to do if you're an individual investor, mm. apart from some of your more sophisticated listeners out there. Bear fund, you buy it like a share, the exact same way you buy the Commonwealth Bank shares, and you go short the market. And the same could be said for, you know, even even my example around the Nasdaq. It's quite hard to get exposure to a hundred a hundred shares in one trade in mm. the you know, a hundred share. What's well, impossible in one trade, but it's very hard to get exposure to a hundred of the largest tech names easily. You got to set up an account in the U.S. Blah blah blah. With an ETF, you're getting that democratization of being able to do it. Yeah, we're not. I'll put a caveat on this. We're not giving financial advice here, but let's say an example of where you might use this bear fund is if you have a particular view that the market's going to fall, you could buy the ETF rather than going and using all these exotic instruments and trying to understand them. Um, okay, let's look under the hood quickly of an ETF. Yeah. What actually happens? 
Yeah, so staying with my example of the NASDAQ, mm -hmm. we would simply go and buy 100. We would, well, an investor would, would give us some amount of money. Uh, that amount of money would essentially be, and I'm simplifying this massively, would essentially be invested in 100 companies. So we would go and buy all 100 companies that make up the current NASDAQ 100 index. Mm -hmm. If there's any dividends, we would pass on those dividends to that investor, pro rata for their investment amount. Uh, so that's 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 basically how it happens. We essentially just take the investors' money and and deliver them the returns of something they've invested in by buying them ourselves. Um, a little bit more technically, there is what's known as market makers involved. Mm -hmm. um, um, and so what actually is happening is that when you are invest when you are buying and selling an ETF on, for example, your Comsec account or whatever account you have, you are buying it either from an existing investor of our ETFs or from the market maker that works with us. Now, the market maker's role is to basically be the, the group that is out there giving people the opportunity to buy and sell the ETF at any time. And that's very important because mm -hmm. it means that at any time throughout the trading day, you will, should be able to buy and sell the fund because the market maker will be there to buy and sell from you. So the market maker is there buying or selling from you and you're essentially buying from them they essentially trade directly with us yeah so that's that's basically what happens and so that is that's that's in a very simple way that's what we do and is there any i suppose red uh, red flags here that would go off if you if you being the expert would look at another etf issuer is there anything that perhaps our listeners should be avoiding if they think it, they want to know a bit more about this i think that it is useful before investing in an etf to have a look at that etf on the market or on the trading screen, whichever what that, whatever that might be, your online trading account, and see how far away the difference is between what's known as the bid and the offer. This is what's known as the bid and offer spread. There is a tolerance level that's fair, given depending on what the actual investment you're doing is. But if that if that amount, so if for example you saw the bid was a particular number and the offer was a number significantly far away from that, I would start to be worried about that particular product. But the truth of the matter is that we're very fortunate that in their wisdom, the regulator of our financial services industry, ASIC, has been very careful about who they allow into this industry, hmm. uh, both in terms of the issuers themselves, which is the issuers, just another word for the managers, such as beta shares, both in terms of the issuers themselves, but also the type of exposure that's being provided by the ETF. Because... Um, Essentially, ETFs are highly liquid instruments. You'll always be able to buy and sell them as long as the thing that the ETF is trying to give exposure to is itself liquid. So you could not, you know, you'd be worried, which hasn't happened in Australia and will never happen given what I've just said about the regulator, but you'd be worried if you saw an ETF that was aiming to be an ETF over something that you knew in your head was actually really illiquid, hardly ever traded, mm. such as homes, mm. residential property. homes, yeah. residential property. They do not have discoverable price. They are not liquid in that way. You can't buy and sell them every second. You cannot create an ETF over residential property as defined without real concern. Mm. But because um, that is not the case and because the regulator has been very good about what they allow in, it's not something I would focus on. What I'd focus on is making sure that the fund manager that you're dealing with is a reputable fund manager. You know, there's three to four very large players in Australia, that, in, including ourselves, that, that would fit that category that you understand what you're actually investing in. So mm. yeah, you wouldn't want to be going to buy the bear fund thinking you're going to make money when the market goes up. You're going to get exactly <laughs> the opposite. I understand what, you, what you're investing in. And other than that, uh, you know, just a few, a few things around making sure that you do things like when you buy ETFs, you buy what's using a limit order. So you put a limit order in. I mean, people who trade shares would understand what that means. Mm. So you can either take a market order or a limit order. A market order means you take the, whatever price the market's giving and limit is you set a price it's better to do that because of you know you don't want to get to a situation where somebody throws out a random number and you just get hit on the you know on the, on the bid so yep. things like that but otherwise it's really straightforward um and i would say the best way to get started is to start small there's no minimum investment and most people once they do that get confidence to keep going how big is the etf industry in the world yeah. the global etf industry would be now well over five trillion dollars us mm-hmm and I'll just give you your listeners some stats just to give you a sense of just how mainstream it is, particularly because it's no, arguably it's definitely not mainstream yet in Australia. So in the US, one out of every three trades on the New York Stock Exchange today is an ETF. Hmm. So one out of every three trades is a stupendously large amount. 
Second of all, the largest ETF in the world trades four times the value of the largest company in the world every day. So depending on the day, the largest company in the world is either Apple, Microsoft, or Amazon. It's all changing a lot at the moment. This is mm. December 2018 for those who listen to this later on. Um, but let's say Apple is the largest company in the world. The largest ETF in the world trades four times the value of that Apple stock every day. So it's unbelievably mainstream to the point where wow. I think millennial investors, I think now we're in a stage where four out of ten or one out of two investors in the US are now using ETFs in the millennial category. So incredible, incredible statistics. Wow. Um, so it's, yeah, that, that's the situation there. Um, our industry in Australia is about $40 billion, obviously significantly smaller than mm. $5 trillion US dollars. But it's fair to say that's off a, you know that's growing fast. So in the last five years or so, it's grown about forty percent a year, um, and it's actually now larger than the I think eighty-three year old listed investment company or Lick industry. So it's taken over what was a almost a hundred-year-old industry in in a much shorter space of time. Yeah. So it's about 40, 40 billion and growing very very fast. Wow, so that's already surpassed Licks in. 20 years, not even. Yeah, yeah, more, yeah, more like 15 years. Yeah. And truthfully speaking, even though the first ETF in Australia came out in 2001, um, the really the truth of the matter is nothing really happened in the industry until about 2007, 2008. Right. That's where things, probably for the reasons I described earlier in this podcast, yeah. that's where both ourselves and others started getting much more interested mm. in the industry and we saw exponential growth. Hmm. Okay. Um, you touched on something there about millennials investing you know, four out of 10 millennials buying ETFs or have, having an exposure to it. The way we think about stocks now and buying stocks could be um, the way we think about ETFs in the future. And, and yeah. it's not, no longer going to be about, you know, how many stocks do you have? It's how yeah. many ETFs. How many ETFs? Because I, I, I went and did some reading on this knowing that we we're going to have this conversation. And yes. I, I read a stat somewhere is about 10,000 ETFs in managed funds, something crazy in the US, which is about, to, for context, is about, it's more than the number of shares on the yeah. exchange. Yeah. How many ETFs is enough, you know? <laughs> well, in Australia, we are so far away from that at the moment. We're around 200-odd, 220, and there's still so much to do there, given the stats I just, I just said. So at the end of the day, an ETF which is not going to get have any demand will ultimately wither away and die. I mean, just to let you know, even if that was to happen, you get all your money back. There's no concept of mm. loss because of the way in which ETF assets are held. So ETF assets are held in a third party. So, so you're it, still the owner of them. You're still the owner of them, yeah. But yeah. that's an aside. But look, you know, I don't I think there will come certainly a time where there are too, sort of too many and then what will happen is as always happens there'll be a maturation and then they'll end up becoming a you know, a solidification and there'll just be a certain number that becomes more more equilibrium. Maybe the US is getting close. I think the US might be getting close. I know that Australia has got a long way to go. So, I think the main thing just comes back to that liquidity point I mentioned before. You shouldn't be too worried about investing in a new ETF so long as you're confident that the underlying exposure is liquid and so long as you understand it because ultimately you will – it's not a situation where you can lose money, fortunately enough. Mm. So again, just thinking about your question, come to Australia. I told you that one out of every three trades in the US was now an ETF and it looks like that that could be getting close to – maturation from the perspective of number of products. I do think the industry, by the way, they're still growing at about 15 to 20% a year, which is mm. astonishing. Wow. Um, here, it's one out of every 100 trades. Hmm. So the, so three out of, 30 out of every 100 in the US, one out of every 100 in, in Australia. Wow. It just goes Jeez. to show how far we have to come in terms of growing this market here. Yeah, yeah. I was speaking to uh, Robin Bauman from Vanguard not long yes. ago, and... He was saying the market for index funds is, you know, perhaps in the mid mid teens in terms of market capitalization of the ASX. But that is um, quite an astonishing stat- statistic. It's yeah. clear that yeah, here I was thinking we're approaching two hundred ETFs. How big can we go? Yeah. It, it sounds like there's um there's, there's plenty more room to go. A long way to go. Yeah. We touched on it earlier on. You mentioned the word rules based, or the term rules based, and I, I suppose that's a better way, in my opinion, to describe something that we're seeing come to market more often now, which is this smart beta mm. ETF. Mm. Can you explain that and perhaps use an example? Of course, the best of, course of, of course, of course. So to understand what smart beta is, we need to just quickly describe what beta means, not to use Greek or anything, but it is clearly a Greek term. But beta basically means the market return. So that's why we set up the company Beta Shares. Ultimately, a lot of our <laughs> products aim to give you the returns of a particular market. So... 
the the idea of beta is to give you the market returns. And the reason for doing that is because we haven't touched on this, but the reason for doing this is, lo and behold, there's a huge industry of active management. It's substantially bigger than, than the ETF industry globally, substantially more, I guess, vocal. But lo and behold, <laughs> year in, year out, it's only around 20% of active managers that outperform that beta or that index, which is, to me, quite an astonishing and perhaps sobering thought that you've got... If you invest in any given year, you've got an 8 out of 10 chance of being better off just buying beta. Mm-hmm. So that's what beta is. So the way that you construct beta is you basically buy the stocks that make up an index in accordance with their market capitalization. And that's basically the concept of the price. So market capitalization, for those that don't know, is essentially the total value of the company on a stock exchange. Mm. So you talk about, you know, whatever. CBA has got a whatever it is a forty billion dollar market capitalization. It's how many shares they've got times by the price of that share. Shares times price equals market capitalization. So in order to construct a market capitalization weighted index, you just simply go and go and buy a uh, the stocks in according with their weight in the index. Right mm-hmm. now, that is great. Um, and I guess what's happened is just like anything else, even the world of indexing is innovating. So. ETFs and index funds themselves are an innovation, but of course, the world doesn't stand still. And there is a way to improve in some respects on indexing by what, using what's known as smart beta. And put simply, it's a word that gets used a lot. People probably don't understand it. It has so many different connotations, but really all it is, is an index or rules-based strategy, as you said, Owen, that doesn't use price. So it doesn't use price. It uses something other than price to provide your weight in the index. Hmm. So... Why would you do that and what's an example? The reason why you do that is because even though it's still better than 80% of fund managers, there is a f- some, in some respects a flaw in some way with a market capitalization ind- indexes. And the flaw is that it will go and buy things simply because price is going up and it will sell things because price is going down. That's not to say the company it's actually worse or better. It's just that the market is telling us that the price is going up. Now, why does the price go up? Well, it could be any number of real, really good reasons, like the fact that the earnings has grown or there's been a great new product launched, or it could be a completely faddish reason, like sentiment or people just you know start going crazy about a particular sector, which is, of course, what happened in the 2000 year with technology, mm. where market capitalization went way, way past fundamental value. So here's an example to describe what smart beta is. It's weighting in a way that is not using price. And so any way in which you weight in a non-price way is a smart beta. An example, if I go and say, let's go and create the Owen and Elan Index. We'll go and create it tomorrow. We'll go and license it to beta shares and create a Sounds product. Good. And that product is going to be, we're going to count how many cars there are in each company's car park. The company, the, the company with the largest number will get the highest weight. The company with the smallest number of cars gets the lowest weight. Just doing that alone will mean that you will not be subject to a fad just because if, for example, there's a whole lot of hysteria about a particular company, the number of cars in the car park won't change. There's something good about that. So a good example and a real example is what's known as fundamental indexing. We've got a couple of products in that space whereby we are weighting companies not by their price but by their fundamental value. Mm -hmm. And fundamental value in this particular case takes the form of the accounting statement. So things like earnings, things like dividends paid out, things like cash flow generated or the value of the company. And the reason for doing that is, again, you're getting a a measure on the fundamental value that is divorced from the price. So that's really what it is. I mean, I won't go into any more detail except to say that's what smart beta is. So you can weight by a number of... So a smart beta index could be someone that weights by cars in a car park, uh, how many people in the company have a first name O, um, fundamental value, things like how much dividends are paid dividends. out, all yep. these things. So that's what fundamental smart beta means. Yep. And that can be an interesting way to invest um, mm. as, a, as a way to try and generate a little bit of ex- extra return over a, a, uh, a traditional market cap index. Okay, great. And 
I think I know the answer to this question, but do you personally invest in ETFs? <laughs> you should know the answer. Uh, the answer is I invest a lot in, ET- in, in ETFs, a lot. Okay. In, fact, in, in fact, you know, we started investing in ETFs before we even started beta shares hmm. because we subscribe to the view that it might be better just to buy beta for the reasons I just described. I've also invested in ETF for my young kids. I've got mm-hmm. a young family. As I f- really, I firmly believe in them as arguably the best way to generate long-term growth and long-term wealth. Mm. So I think... You can control a lot of things in your life, but you can't control you can't control a lot of elements of investment. But what you can control is cost, and so having a low cost, smart products like ETFs are just a great way to go. So, yeah, um, yeah I do. The answer yeah. is yes. Yeah, great. Um, how do you do? You, because you've got this Apex Capital Partners as well. How do you think about the the two in in your portfolio, or is it as simple as you know, that money's there and this money's in ETFs? Or no, I do try to be sort of um, eat my own dog food and, and, and practice asset allocation techniques. And I think mm-hmm. it's really important for everybody, no matter what stage in their life, to, to practice those techniques. And of course, I'm, I'm assuming you've probably spoken about that before with other guests, you know, that the idea of making sure that you are investing in things that are appropriate for your life stage. So if you're a millennial investor or you're, you know, you're just starting your first job, please don't go and invest only for income because you've got income coming in. You should be investing entirely at this point for growth. So you should be entirely invested in shares. Shares ultimately are a growth mm. product. So I do practice asset allocation. The, the, the venture stuff that you mentioned in Apex would be the high risk mm. uh, part of the asset allocation. But for my ETF investing, in my stage, I am also still investing primarily for growth. So I still think I've got a, quite a few years left in my working life. And so I'm not heavily investing in things like income. I'm investing in growth-oriented exposures, but I do have exposure to things other than shares. Mm. Um, so I use core yep. exposures, primarily in the growth space, to to build up the core of my investment portfolio. So that's... And I'll start throwing some beta shares products in now. I have to after this this long. So I'm, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm investing in things like our Australia 200 ETF, which is called A200. It's the lowest cost ETF, uh, Australian ETF in the world. It gives you exposure to the largest 200 companies. So in other words, it gives you exposure to the Australian share market at by far the lowest cost you can ever get. I use that as a core. I use the NASDAQ 100 because I'm, I believe that technology is more than just a sector it's a way of life it's a particular thing that we're doing and i also but i also invest outside of shares albeit i'll be honest a much smaller proportion than somebody who was 60 would do mm-hmm. or 70 so i'm investing in etfs to provide exposure to things like the hybrids industry we've got one which is called hbrd it gives you exposure to hybrids i won't go into those are but they're a lower risk therefore lower return investment and even some bonds as well okay so yeah okay great um and just to round that out core meaning like that's the, the overwhelming majority of the portfolio sometimes we call it a tactical as- asset allocation or we call it a satellite which is kind of like this it's a little bit of money or lesser money that is invested in i suppose in your case the venture capital and yes like but not only so yeah you're right i do use what's known as core satellite tactical and in, in my case so i'd have those core sort of situations and i will continue to, to uh, say that this is not financial advice in any shape or form <laughs> But I do have satellites that are ETFs. So my ETF satellites are higher return potential, higher risk pro- mm. products, such as um, an investment in a cybersecurity ETF we have, which is called HACK, H-A-C-K. I think it's a great secular thematic. It's going to have much higher risk than the Australia 200 over, over you know, because it's going to have much more volatility. But I'm a believer in it, so I invest in that. I invest in uh, technology, uh, Asian technology product called Asia, the largest 50 uh, technology stocks in Asia, things like Tencent, Alibaba as a satellite. So I do do that. And yes, the venture stuff would also be part of that satellite. Mm. And, and honestly, I'm also investing in more speculative direct stocks. You know, I, I, you know, I, mean, I, I do. I do sometimes take a view on, on high growth individual stocks, whether they be in Australia or outside of the world. And that's definitely a smaller allocation, mm-hmm. but it's a satellite. Yep. Okay. Um, one thing, and as we come to the, the end of the discussion, one thing that our listeners who may be in the finance industry or advisors, one thing that they'll be interested in, I think, is hearing your thoughts on how you have grown beta shares into this behemoth, if you like, in the retail market. And so that, I mean, individual investors focusing in on them. You don't have to give away your secret sauce, but you, you, you come on podcasts like this, you you do blogs, the website's got some great content. Is that 
what's what's the secret not secret sauce but what, what, what do you do well the rationale behind that is that we fundamentally believe that etfs are the best way that people can start investing so not only are we focused on that retail market but we're even focused on the early young retail market because um, etfs in australia are really an individual investor story in the main i mean the vast majority of our investors would be individual investors rather than institutional investors and i would say 80 percent probably 80 percent of our investors are individual investors so i mean individual investors are people like you and me you have to be able to speak plain english you have to educate you've got to do things like this which are great ways to get people to learn more about investments and i totally applaud anyone doing podcasts and this type of educational activity so the reason for it is we we First of all, the area of growth in this industry is the retail market. We also believe that the young investors will continue to take up ETFs in the same way they have in the US because mm-hmm. um, they're a great way to start investing. They've got no minimums and all the things we've spoken about. So the only way to do it is to, is to be out there educating and educating in a non-traditional way, educating via podcast, educating via video, educating via social media, Instagram. We do it all because we are here for the long run. The long run is going to involve the future of a very heavy adoption of ETFs by individual investors, and I would say will be the numbers will approach those of the US from a percentage perspective. The only way to, quite frankly, be a leader is to talk to those people in the terms they understand and in the means and media by which they, they, they understand. So, you know, we do traditional things, but we're not only doing the long-winded white papers, we're also focusing on short-form blog content and, and video content and, and things like that. So... That's the answer, basically. Yeah, I think you touched on something really important there and you said the long run. And I think when you're approaching retail investors, it's about that consistent message, delivering it often. And I think you guys have done that really well. So if people wanted to find out more about BetaShares website, I'm guessing? Yeah, that's right. So we do, as you mentioned, have a lot of content. And I think, so obviously our betashares.com.au website is is the hub of all that. Um, there's a particular thing for those interested, um, which is an email course, six-stage email course, relatively deep content in that course where people can learn about ETFs on our website. So you sign up and you get uh, six emails over the course of, I think it's three weeks. It includes a whole lot of ebooks, and maybe five or six ebooks, and that's so that's quite deep. So that's a great way to learn about what ETFs are. Mm-hmm. If you're a bit more sophisticated, then go onto our uh, website, look at the insights page, and have a look at what we've written. Uh, and uh, yeah, we're obviously on all the social media networks mm-hmm. as well, and primarily Facebook, um, LinkedIn, Twitter. Yeah. So yeah. Great. Okay. Last question, one of my favorite. If you go back and tell a younger you something about money, finance, or investing, what would it be? Probably to start even earlier than I did. Just get started. You know, even with the smallest amount of means, you can generate really significant wealth if you focus on things like compounding and regular investment. And I've no doubt you would have heard this many times before. Hmm. And also, don't sweat the small stuff. You know, just get set, invest regularly. Don't sweat the real small stuff. You know, don't get fixated on 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 the next biggest fad. Just focus on costs. Maintain. You won't even know what that is back when you're younger, but maintain asset allocation exposure that's appropriate. So when you're young, heavy growth. As you get older, reduce that growth. So just get started and be consistent is what I would say. Great. It's a wonderful way to finish the podcast. Thanks for your time, Eli. Thanks, Owen. Really appreciate it. Thanks again for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast. For further episodes, head to www.raskfinance.com. To provide feedback, nominate a guest, or hear from me, you can find me on Twitter with the handle at Owen Rask. Cheers to our financial futures. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.